You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Psalm 20. We continue in our study of Psalms and I'm really thinking if we start our study in Galatians, it's not going to be long. We'll be taking a break in Galatians and pausing for Easter. Um, So maybe we'll stay in the Psalms and some other passages of Scripture until after Easter and start Galatians. And I say maybe because I want to reserve the right for prayerful reflection on that. Um, So someone was asking the other day, when are we starting Galatians? And I was happy to hear that question because it means you're excited to start Galatians. So that's great. Uh, we're excited to study that great book. I think everyone's found their place. Psalm 20, I invite you to follow along as I read. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing as we seek to study your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would teach us, that you'd be pleased to show us the meaning of your word and its proper application, Father, that our hearts may be um, um, brought in further alignment with your word, which we know is to be brought in further alignment with you, that we would truly think your thoughts after you and become more and more like our Savior. To this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to get Psalm 20 sorted out, one of the first things that we're going to need to do is sort out some pronouns here, especially the you. Who is the you in Psalm 20? And in fact, look at the frequency of you. May the Lord answer you, verse 1, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. We have two usages in verse 1. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary. May he give you support from Zion. Two more uses. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. Two more uses of you. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire, fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Who is the you? Now, one of the reasons I want to spend so much time on this is because we have a tendency, um, and I don't suppose this is something that's necessarily unique to contemporary Christianity, but we have a tendency when we see you in verses like this to put ourselves in there. I mean, after all, it would sound great, wouldn't it? Listen to that list of petitions. May the Lord answer me in the day of trouble. May the name of God protect me. May he send me help from the sanctuary. May he send me support from Zion. All these things, you put me in there, or we put our distressed friends and loved ones in there. Now, don't get me wrong. These are great petitions to pray for one another. 
Um, it, you know, all day long, you know, people will send me texts. I'll get requests for prayer. And, and um, these kind of sentiments are how I very often will answer people. You know, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord, may the Lord answer you. May the Lord give you strength. May the Lord, we say these kinds of things to one another. We pray these things for one another. And that's what we want to do, right? That's exactly what we want to do. But is that what this psalm is about? Again, we need to answer the question, who is being spoken to in this psalm? In other words, who is the you of this psalm? Now, when you look at verse 6, you start to get a clue. We have all these petitions, if you will, these prayer requests in verses 1 through 5. Then in verse 6, the psalmist says, now I know that the Lord says his what? Anointed. Lowercase a. We continue. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in the horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall. We rise and stand upright. Look at verse 9. O Lord, save who? The king. Who is the you? Verses 1 through 5. It's the king. That's right. It's the anointed with a lowercase a. It is the king. It's so important that we understand that. That's why this psalm is often referred to as a royal psalm, because it concerns the king of Israel. It's a prayer for the king. Now, who is speaking in this psalm? Who is the one who is speaking? Well, um, he asks, you know, he, he, whoever he is, he is speaking to the king because he says, may the Lord answer you, assuming we're, he's facing the king perhaps. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, and et cetera, et cetera. He's asking these, um, these requests. In verse uh, 6, he says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. But in verse 7, we get something really interesting. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we. So we have a singer, singular I, who is representing we, right? So we have a singer, which is often the case in the Psalms. We have a singer, a psalmist, if you will, who is entreating the Lord. He's facing the king. He's speaking to the king. But as he's speaking to the king, he's praying for the king. And he stands as representative for the we, if you will. And that is the gathered assembly. Does that make sense? Now, what is the context of this? Well, it appears... Um, a day of trouble, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This could be a charge like we'd have, for example, at our organizational service. There was a charge given to me, given to you, given to the elders, um, and specifically given to Dan when Dan was ordained in that service. And, of course, these kind of sentiments can be, um, can be spoken um, and you could speak about the day of trouble. It's not upon us now, but it's coming sometime in the future. So that could be the case. We're speaking about the day of trouble because the day of trouble will come. It's not upon us now. That could be the case. But I think the evidence weighs heavily that there is, the day of trouble is upon them. What kind of trouble could it be? It appears to be military trouble. Uh, because we have, if you just look at the prayer requests themselves, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. That's an important little phrase there, the name of God, the name of the God of Jacob. That takes us back to uh, Genesis 35, 
And in Genesis 35, Jacob is a little bit scared out of his wits because his two sons, Simeon and Levi, have just ravished the whole entire village. And what is Jacob afraid of? He's afraid of the neighboring villages all ganging up and saying, what are these guys doing? Let's snuff them out. Jacob has really good reason to be concerned. And the Lord calls him to Bethel and says, go to Bethel and make an altar for me there. And Jacob does that. And, in, and you don't need to turn there, but in Genesis 35.3, we read these words. Jacob says to his family, let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me where I have gone. Of course, the psalmist is picking up on this language. The name of the God of Jacob. May you come and help us in this day of distress, if you will. It seems to be military language. Offerings and sacrifices are being offered. That was typically done when Israel went out to battle. Uh, in 1 Samuel 7, we have an example of Samuel offering sacrifices when Israel goes out to fight the Philistines. We also have another example in, in uh, 1 Samuel 13. Um, this idea of salvation in the name of the Lord our God. May he set up our banners. Again, military language. Verse 6, save, may the Lord save his anointed. It's also military language, but especially in verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, what was a chariot and a horse? Someone said a chariot and a horse. So, you know, it was, it was some of the most um, formidable military uh, equipment that was known to this time. Um, you know, if we were ancient Israelites, we would fear a large army with a lot of chariots. That would be something that would be... You know, I oftentimes think about this warfare. Could you imagine? Could you imagine, like, armed with a sword, running into battle, facing someone else who's coming at you with a sword? Just how frightening that would be. Um, that's what life was like. Verse 8, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright forever. Oh, Lord, save the king. So it seems to be a military skirmish. And that's what led us to 2 Chronicles 20. And if you keep your place in Psalm 20 and you turn back to 2 Chronicles 20, we have something really interesting going on there because we have an example of a faithful king. I mean, uh, there's things we could say yay for Jehoshaphat. There's things that we could say nay for Jehoshaphat. But largely, he was a faithful king. And here we see him... Uh, operating as an exemplary king in this chapter, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, there we're told in verse 1 that the Moabites and the Ammonites, along with some Mannonites, come up against or came up against Jehoshaphat for battle. And we're also told that they're, they're a great multitude. They're described as a horde. Imagine this great multitude of people arraying themselves in battle against you. How does Jehoshaphat react? Verse 3, he's afraid. Now, what does he do with that fear? He sets his face to seek the Lord. He proclaims a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembles to seek help from the Lord in verse 4. So what's, what's happening here? A great assembly is called. Make sense? This is the day of distress. It's the day of trouble. Okay, we've got this enemy coming with intentions of destroying us. Okay, we call an assembly. We've called a fast. They're gathered. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stands in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. And verse 6, he begins to petition the Lord. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all of the kingdoms of the nations. 
in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? What's Jehoshaphat doing there? He's standing on the promises of God there. We could put it another way, which is important for us to put it. He's standing on the covenant. Last week I was um, showing how, you know, we have the word covenant appears a couple hundred times in Scripture. It's not, sometimes it's referring to covenant, covenants between people, but often, more often than not, it's referring to the great covenants that God makes. Covenant of Noah, with Noah, covenant with Moses, covenant with Abraham. And it's important that we get our minds around that, and it's important that, we get our, that, that not only do we get our minds around it, but we learn to interpret Scripture through those lenses. What is, what is going on? Jehoshaphat is resting on the covenant promises that God has given to Abraham. And we're going to see he's also resting in the covenant promises that God had made with David in the Davidic covenant, namely that one of David's offspring will rest, will 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 be on his throne forever. And I know in our culture and in our minds, it's sometimes easy to get lost with the word covenant, but we've got to learn to see it. We've got to learn uh, to hold on to it. What is Jehoshaphat doing? Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Well, that's what God promised to do. That's what he had promised Abraham he would do. And Jehoshaphat is recalling that promise. Verse 8, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, uh, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Verse 10, and now behold, the men of Ammon and, and, and Moab and Mount Seir, who... Uh, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Notice that Jehoshaphat's resolved. He says, listen, if I'm left to myself here, if we're left to ourselves here, this enemy is too strong for us. It's too powerful for us. It's going to overtake us, Lord. But no enemy is too strong for you. You see, that's the posture that, that Jehoshaphat's in. Now, in verse 13, we're told that, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children, just like we're gathered here this morning, with our little ones and our wives and our children. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, and in verse 15, he begins to speak. He says, listen, all Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Do you hear that? The battle is not yours but God's. That's an interesting thing to say. What does that mean? Again, it comes back to the covenant. God had made covenant promises to Abraham, and especially to David in this context, God had made a covenant promise to David that one of his offspring will be on his throne forever and ever and ever. And here this army, this massive army, has arrayed to completely snuff out Jerusalem, to snuff out Judah. Now, if they're successful, what will they have successfully done? They will have successfully eradicated the offspring of David. 
which would, in effect, render God's promise null and void. He would then be unable to uh, accomplish his promises. So in other words, once we look beyond flesh and blood, as Paul tells us, he says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Once we begin to look beyond the people, behind this is a larger battle that we need to be mindful of. And what is, what is in this battle? Satan himself is trying to keep these promises from happening. And that's why God says, listen, this, this thing is not, this, this battle is not yours. This, this battle is mine. I'm going, to, I'm going to fight this battle. This battle is mine. Verse 15 at the end, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. They're arraying themselves against me. I mean, we could say they're trying to snuff out God's children, and trying to snuff out God's children, they're coming against God. We could say that, but there's much more to it than that. There's much more to it than that. Because if God cannot fulfill his promises, what does that look like to the rest of the world? What does that look like? God will fulfill his promises. And what we need to understand here is there is an enemy who is always trying to stop this. We've got to get that sorted out. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Now, Jehoshaphat has told the Lord, I don't know what to do. In one sense, Jehoshaphat doesn't have any plans, in one sense, because he says to the Lord, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. But in another sense, we could say Jehoshaphat has the perfect plan. Because what is his plan? In realizing he cannot stand up against this army, in realizing he doesn't have the wisdom or the strength to stand up to them, his plan is to go to the Lord who has the might to do this. So in one sense, we say he doesn't, he doesn't have a plan. In another sense, we say he does. I went to seminary with a, a fellow. We were kindred spirits. He, would study, he was an engineer for many years, and he was used to designing bridges and roadways and stuff where there's an answer. And it used to drive him nuts in theology where you'd say, you know, a lot of these points are like coins. You know, there's one side, there's another side, and it used to just drive him nuts. It never bothered me much. In one sense, we could say Jehoshaphat doesn't have a plan because he says we do not know what to do. But there's another sense in going to the Lord, he has the perfect plan. It's the perfect plan. It's always the perfect plan to take our cares and cast them upon the Lord, isn't it? It's the perfect plan. And in that sense, both things can be said and both things can be true. We don't have a plan, but we're in the midst of exercising a plan because we're going to the Lord for his wisdom. That is a plan. Now, the Lord has given Jehoshaphat plans. That's going to become important when we go back to Psalm 20 here in a minute. But look what happens next. Um, in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord. What? Doing what? What were they doing? Worshiping. You know, last, you know, in Psalm 73, we saw the importance of worship and trying to discern and try to understand, you know, there Asaph, if he's the singer of Psalm 73, which we think he is, Asaph is trying, you know, he's become, he, you know, he's become uh, 
uh, envious of the wicked. And he, you know, he, why is it that the wicked are prospering the way that they're prospering? Why is everything going wonderfully for them? And they're forsaking the Lord, and the Lord isn't judging them. In fact, they seem to be flourishing. And where are these blessings coming from? What is the, how is it that the Lord's blessing those who are, who are wicked? And, and, and the, the situation is, is so bad that Asaph almost falls. And he can't figure it out until he goes into the sanctuary of the Lord. And there, in worship, there he's able to discern their end. So the Lord meets him as he worships. And one of the applications I made of that is the importance of coming to church. If we don't think coming to church is important, oh my goodness. I'll tell you what, if if we're defeated already, if we think not coming to church is important, you're already defeated. And you are in one really bad spiritual situation if you don't think coming to church is important. Now, I'm not talking to people who can't come to church because of some disability. Um, People can't come to church because maybe their employer causes them to have to work, but we should be doing everything we can to be assembled, present, physically with the people of God. Why? Because our spiritual welfare so depends upon it. But besides that, if our true allegiance is to Jesus... Why are we AWOL on Sunday morning? We just have to ask ourselves that. One of the reasons why I'm pushing this so much is because there's a lot of really dangerous ideas out there. Like, ah, oh, you don't got to go to church. You know, you can turn on the TV. You can watch. That's not going to church. It's not anybody who's gone to church and worshiped and experienced the, the presence of the Lord versus sitting in a living room where your phone could ring or kids could come walking in or you could be interrupted any time. I mean, do you sing? You don't have the lyrics to sing. You're not participating with the public. You're not, first of all, standing publicly and demonstrating your allegiance to the Lord by singing the Psalms. All of those components are missing. And so will many of those blessings be missing. So here they are, and what's interesting is this horde hasn't gone anywhere. This army is still marching against Jerusalem, and what are they doing? They're on their faces worshiping God. Doesn't that seem, doesn't, I mean, doesn't like freaking out seem like a better thing to do? Isn't that normally what we do when we're up against such great distress like that? Isn't it, I mean, Exhausting all of our resources? Try to, I mean, what are they doing? They're all gathered together, and they're worshiping. And in verse 19, the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They're singing. Now, in verse 20, they rise up early in the morning, and they go out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed. Now, here we have more plans. He's taken counsel with the people. So he's getting more plans. He appointed those who were to sing uh, to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went out before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Someone might say, That sounds familiar. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Yeah, it comes from Psalm 136. And, you know, you remember when we had the baptism service for my Uncle Earl? I was one of the psalms that we had in that service, and we did it antiphonically, meaning I read from a passage, and then you as a congregation repeated back, for his steadfast love endures forever. Maybe you'll remember that. So what are they doing? They're singing Psalm 136 as they're, as they're marching to battle. They're continuing to worship is what they're doing. And the point I want to bring out is, the, is, is we don't think of worship 
as being something that's so important for a time such as this. But what I want to show from the scriptures is that worship is important, especially in times like this. Does that make sense? Doesn't that seem, I mean, it just, especially us, we're so, pro, so, we're so programmatic. I mean, um, we, we, need a pro, we want a program. We want some kind of plan. We want some kind of script, you know? Um, and here we've got this worship taking place. Now, uh, as they go, of course, we see the rest. You know, what does the Lord do? The Lord actually sets an ambush for, these, uh, for this army. And this army actually destroys itself so that in this particular case, Israel doesn't have to fight, just as God had promised. You won't have to fight in this battle. Most of the time, this is unique but most of the time, they did have to fight, and we need to keep that in mind. Now, with this in the background, let's return to Psalm 20. And I think Psalm 20 makes more sense to us when we do that. Uh, we don't know the specific historical context that caused this psalm to be written. We're told it's a psalm of David. David went to battle many times, but I think we can see a use for this psalm. You know, an army has raised itself up against Israel. The singer, the leader, the spokesperson for the congregation that is assembled at this time is praying to the Lord, looking to the king, praying to the Lord, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. These, again, as I've already said, Samuel shows us that these were often offered when, when Israel was going out to battle. Again, that is worship. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. You know, too often we take these verses, we put ourselves in, we take the king out, or we're not even aware that the king is even the you of these verses. And how can we pray, Lord, grant me all my desires and fulfill all my plans. Some of my desires and plans are sinful. God is not going to, God's not going to, he's, he, first of all, I'm, we're children, we can't give our children everything they ask for. We're going to make a mess of our kids. There's an important word that we have to hear, and actually we have to hear it a lot, and that word is no, right? It can't be yes all the time, not because we want to be mean, but if we make yes, if, if our no means maybe or our no means negotiable, we're, we're in trouble. No has to mean no. When God says no to us, it means no, and we take a lead from his book, no is an important thing. It's disappointing. But no is very important. What plans then may, what, what is the psalmist singing for? Y your heart's desire. Well, in the case of Jehoshaphat, we see a faithful king leading this thing. And how does he lead this thing? In one sense, he says, we don't know what to do. In another sense, it's, hearts, it's his heart's desire that he seeks the Lord. Now, God can bless that, can he? He can certainly bless that. May he grant you your heart's desire. What is my heart's desire? My heart's desire is I seek the Lord in this battle and I get his plans and that his plans are fulfilled. And may we shout for joy over your salvation. Salvation is an interesting word here because salvation, of course, if there was an army up against us, salvation would be deliverance from this powerful enemy. But salvation in verse 5 is more than simply deliverance. See the victory tones of it. May we shout for joy over it. There's a sense not just of simple deliverance, but also a sense of this victorious joy 
Does that make sense? Let's hold on to that for a moment. Now, you'll notice in verse 6 that the psalmist really changes here in verses 6, 7, and 8. We have this token of confidence all at once. It's like, it's like abrupt to where this, the, the petition stops in verse 5. And in verse 6, the psalmist says, ah, now I know. Now I know. How do I know? In, in the context of this worship service, I now know. You now know what? I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He does. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in the horses, but no, 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 no. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now, a lot of the application of this is going to have to wait for next week, and I'm not going to do a Jonathan Edwards where I just leave you until next week. Nothing, if there's anything against Jonathan Edwards, but sometimes he'd preach these sermons, and you'd read these sermons, and you, you, you would think, oh, man, well, the way he left the congregation until the following week, you know, now all you got to do is turn the page, and you can read the next sermon, but they waited a week for the next sermon. And the next sermon is in Psalm 21, which is connected to Psalm 20, but let's Let's think about this for a minute. In the case of Jehoshaphat, there's this big horde of enemy soldiers coming to destroy and conquer King Jehoshaphat, right? They want to destroy him. They want to dethrone him. They want to take him out of the ball game. If they're successful in doing this, what happens to the people? in Judah. Well, they're destroyed as well, aren't they? Or carried off as prisoners, forced to be slaves, or who knows what. What's important for us to see here is as the king fares, so do the people. It makes sense? If Jehoshaphat falls, Judah falls. If Jehoshaphat succeeds, the people are victorious, right? Now, who is Jehoshaphat pointing to ultimately? Who is he a type of? He foreshadows Christ. In fact, all of these kings, they point to the king. All of the kings with the little k I-N-G-S, point to the single king who is king with a capital K, I-N-G, right? And the principle that we're to get from Psalm 20 is this. As the king fares, so do his people. Where does Jesus fight his battle? Well, really, in one sense, it's through his entire life, living that perfect life, so he can take that perfect life to the cross. But he really has a battle in many places of his ministry, but especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? Where he's sweating droplets of blood. He's the only one that understands what's going on, he, and he knows what he has to endure. As we said in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. What's that mean? On the cross, Jesus really does suffer the anguish of God's wrath being marched against him, for the sins of those whom he came to save. That's where Jesus fights the battle. That's where our king goes to battle and fights. 
But on the third day, our king rises victorious. And as the king rises victorious, so do his people. The implications of that are staggering. What that means is, too often we look at, we, we, if we put ourselves, you know, if we put ourselves in the you in this verse, as we're so inclined to do in contemporary Christianity, then we turn Psalm 20 into a wish or a desire. I just wish that the Lord would, the Lord would answer you in the day of trouble. And me, you know, and, and, but if we do that to Psalm 20, we, we, we ruin Psalm 20 because Psalm 20 is not a wish or a desire. Psalm 20 is a certainty. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. On the third day, Almighty God raised the anointed with a capital A from the grave. And that's how Paul can say, you know, in this great chapter of Ephesians, that's how Paul can, you know, he can go on in that chapter to say that all who are in Christ were raised with Christ. How is it that we're raised with Christ? Because as the king fares, so do his people. And suddenly the psalm becomes, oh my goodness, look at this psalm. Our king is victorious. Our king went to battle in our place. Our king rose on the third day. We're here to celebrate the resurrection. We don't just do this on Easter. We do this every Sunday, don't we? But every morning we can celebrate the resurrection because the resurrection proves that Jesus, Jesus is victorious. And as Jesus is victorious, so are we victorious. And we can speak in the prophetic perfect. What is the prophetic perfect? When we can speak about something that hasn't happened yet with the certainty as if it has already happened. We can say in this sense our battle is won if we're in Christ, even though we've got many battles to face. We've got many battles to face because there's an enemy who seeks to destroy us, isn't there? We come in here some Sundays all beat up from that, don't we? But listen, Jesus rose on the third day, and in rising on the third day, he is what? He is victorious. And because he is victorious, we are victorious. Psalm 20 is not a wish. It is a certainty. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, Otto, we thank you for psalms like this. We thank you for all the psalms, but they're so amazing, Lord. And when we get to Psalm 21, we'll be able to continue to see how we can more effectively pray for these things. But right now, Lord, I think we're with the Queen of Sheba. We say our, our, our breath is taken away because we haven't been told the half of it. No, Father, we thank you and praise you, O Lord, for your word is breathtaking. And, Father, it's in the context of worship that we learn these things, that we're truly studying at home and studying by ourselves is so important. But coming together as we come together to hear you speak to us as a whole and worship, we see the importance of worship in the battle that we fight every day. Father, I pray, Lord, you'll bring men out to our men's uh, meeting, Father, for all the men are especially in these battles as, as, Lord, the evil one seeks to destroy his families and he does Going after the men and the families is one of the surest ways to destroy a family, Father. Oh, Lord, there's so many applications we can make of Psalm 20 this way, Father. But we see, Lord, that in you, Father, we are victorious because if we are in you in saving faith, we are on the winning side of this. But, oh, Father, we also see that a sharp line is drawn. 
that if we are not, if we are not in Christ, we are on the losing side of this battle. We will be destroyed if we're not in Jesus. And, oh, Father, we pray you'll continue to, to take souls and extract them, Father, from, from this, this, this army that is meant for destruction, that will destroy itself, as we see from Second Chronicles 20. They destroy themselves. They can't stand. Sin cannot stand. It destroys itself. Father, as we look to these things, Father, may we be reminded of the importance not only to be, not only to cast our, our hearts trust on the Lord, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, may we trust in the Lord our God. And, oh, Father, may we exercise that faith and exercise that trust and worship with the people of God in the presence of a worshiping community, oh, Father. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for these many, many blessings that we get in this psalm. We see especially the certainty of the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen, we pray.